It was the Christian author, Lawrence Richards, who told the story about a woman he knows. He said that she has a three-year-old daughter, and one day after church, her daughter was outside playing. And then the daughter came inside and, and mumbled to herself, I wish he'd leave me alone. And the mother became concerned, so she went outside and she looked for someone that maybe was bothering her daughter. But she didn't see anyone, so mom just came back inside and went back to her chores. A few minutes later, the little girl came back in and said, I wish he would leave me alone. So the mom looks through the window in the front lawn. There's no one there. The third time the little girl came in and said to herself, I wish he'd leave me alone. Mom said, listen, who is bothering you? And her little daughter said, Jesus, I wish he'd leave me alone. She said, what are you talking about? She said, well, in Sunday school this morning, they taught that Jesus sees you everywhere you go. And I wish he'd leave me alone. I want to pluck those flowers, but I know I'm not supposed to. And you know what? I think that little girl was being honest about how most of us have felt at times in our lives. There are times we want to do our thing, and we just wish God would leave us alone. We wish God would not watch us, would not see us. And when we consider the fact that God knows all about us, that there's not a moment that he doesn't see us, there's not a word on our tongue that he doesn't know, there's not a thought in our head, there's not an action of our lives that we take that he is not already aware of, it can be a very convicting feeling. Because sometimes we just want to do our own thing. And we wish God would leave us alone. But friend, God loves you too much to leave you alone. Whenever God makes himself known to you in your life, it is because he loves you. And he is wanting to guard you from the harm that could come in your life if you ignore him. So the knowledge that God knows all about me, knows all about you, can be convicting, but it can also be comforting. It can be comforting to know that wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing, whatever your problems are, whatever challenges you're facing, whatever grief you're dealing with, he's there and he cares for you. And he loves you. And he wants to be a part of every moment of your life. God is not satisfied with being relegated to Sunday morning for an hour. No, he wants to let you know that he is with you wherever you go and whatever you face. And that can be a very comforting thing indeed. I spoke to a family member who is standing faithfully by her husband as he is dying of cancer. And both of these are good, godly people. But it's been a very difficult journey their own. And as I went to comfort them when I was back in Georgia, she comforted me by saying, God is right here in this hospital room. God is right here with every chemotherapy treatment. God is right here even as we've called in hospice. If it weren't for God, we don't know what we would do. And so for her, the knowledge that no matter what they're facing in life, God is there is very comforting. You know, King David felt the same way, which is why he penned the words, or at least commissioned the words of this psalm. He wanted to confess to God that, God, I know you know all about me, and I want to know you more. And so what we hear here in Psalm 139 is David talking about God to God. And he's telling God what he knows about God. And he's telling God he knows that God is very well acquainted with David. 
And you know what? These four truths today that we will see from Psalm 139 were not only truths that David could confess to God about God, they're four truths you too can confess to God about God. This psalm can become your personal song, your personal confession of faith to God, your personal prayer to God, that no matter what you're going through, you can always know He knows and that He's with you. Now, there are 24 verses to this psalm, and I think the psalm naturally divides itself into four sections of six verses each. And so what I want you to see are four truths about God that David declares to God. The first truth we find in verses 1 through 6, and and I'm just going to summarize these six verses in my own words that have helped me. Maybe they'll be an encouragement to you as well. First of all, David confesses to God about God, I know you know. I know you know. Now, David is not writing this psalm to you. He's not writing it to me. He's writing this to God. And he's confessing in these first six verses, God, I know you know. You know everything there is to know about me. Look at verse 1, for example. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. That word searched that David uses can be translated, you have excavated me. You have dug through me. You have sifted through every aspect of my life, and you have known me. There is nothing you don't know about me. David is picturing God as a cosmic archaeologist sifting through every aspect of David's past, present, and future. And David says, God, I know you know. You have searched me and known me. And then David begins to give examples of how God knows. Look, if you will, at verse 2. He says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. David says, It doesn't matter what I'm doing. You are aware and you know. You know when I sit down and you know when I get up. You know when I rest. You know when I rise. You know everything about me. God, you know my sleeping, my working, you know my ease, you know my endeavors. Everything is open to you. In fact, you discern my thoughts from afar. Not only do you know what I'm doing, you know what I'm thinking. You discern my thoughts from afar. Here I am, lowly David down here. There you are, the God of the universe, seated on your throne. And even from the vantage point of heaven, you can discern my thoughts. That word discern means to sift. It's the picture of someone taking wheat and separating the wheat from the chaff. And David is saying, God, even from heaven, you're able to discern the good thoughts I've got and the bad thoughts I've got. Even my thoughts are known to you. Verse 3, you search out my path and my lying down. You know where I'm going, the path I'm going to take, and you know when I rest. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. You know, there are some of us who have... Uh, public reputations and people see what we do in some of our ways. They see maybe that you're one way when you're at church, but you're another way when you're at home. Well, God sees all of your ways. 
God sees you every moment of every day in every relationship and every responsibility of life. He sees all of your ways. And then he says in verse 4, Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before there's even a word on my tongue, before I even know what I'm going to say, you already know what I'm going to say. Sometimes Don and I have been married so long, we'll be talking about some issue, and I'll say something, and she'll say, I knew you were going to say that. Well, God knows what you're going to say. Have you ever been trying to find the right word, and it just won't come? I, I call that preaching. Holly, I call that preaching. And, and so I'm sitting here trying to find that right word, and, and we'll say something like this. I can't think of that word. It's on the tip of my tongue. Well, long before you even know what you're going to say, David says, God, you know it. You know it altogether. You know it perfectly. There's nothing hidden to you. David's not finished with how God knows him. David now uses in the next verse an analogy uh, of a besieged city. Look at what he writes in verse 5. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. David is picturing a city that is besieged by an army. And an army comes to the walled city and besieges it. The army hems it in, surrounds it, closes off any escape route. And David says, God, you have surrounded me. If I try to go backward, I run into you there. If I try to run away from you forward, you were there. If I try to climb up and over the wall, you are there. I'm surrounded by you, God. There is nowhere that I can go without you. And David knew this imagery of a besieged city. He had done it to others. Others had done it to him. And he says, God, that's what you've done in my life, that you're surrounding me, him and me in, behind and before and over is even your hand on me. I can't escape you, God. And then he confesses in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David says, this is incomprehensible. The fact that you know all things is beyond my ability to fathom. I, I can't understand that. And by the way, I feel the same way this morning. The more I know about God, the more I realize I have yet to learn about him. And by the way, if you think you can get God all figured out and put in a box, then God's only as big as that box. If you think you can fully fathom God and there are no mysteries to God and no questions that just won't have answers, if you could figure God out, then he's only as big as your brain. And I don't want to offend you or your intellect, but I'm not interested in worshiping a God as big as your brain or mine. No, our God is awesome and magnificent. In fact, if you like theological jargon, there's a word you can write over verses 1 through 6. It's the word omniscience, omni, O-M-N-I, and then science. Omni means all. Science means knowledge. And one of the theological truths about God is he is omniscient. He knows all things. And that includes all things about you. And that can be convicting at times if we're doing wrong. We can't run from him. We can't hide from him. He already knows it even before we do it. But it can also be comforting because that same God is a God of love and mercy and forgiveness and grace. And he is there whenever we face the troubles of life. So the first truth about God 
that David confesses to God is, God, I know you know. You know everything there is to know about me. Now, whenever I fly out of Jacksonville, it's always fun to get a window seat. And, you know, you look out the window as you take off. And then you start looking for familiar landmarks. Oh, there's the Dames Point Bridge, or there's downtown, or, or there's this neighborhood, or, oh, hey, there's my house. And, you know, as you start to take off, you can see people in their cars, people walking, people on the sidewalks. But it, the higher you go, the smaller they become until it begins to look like they're just a bunch of ants scurrying to and fro. And then eventually you reach such an altitude that you can't even see the people anymore. And even as I look out that window, I don't know who those people are. I don't know where they're going. I don't know what they're thinking or what they're feeling or what they're experiencing. I can surmise some of these people are going to work. Some of those people are going to a rendezvous that their spouse doesn't know anything about. Some of them are going to a hospital and they're afraid for the surgery they're about to undergo. Some are on their way to a funeral home to grieve the loss of a loved one. Some are on their way to a funeral home in the back of a hearse because they're dead. Some of those folks are rich and some are poor. Some are young, some are old, some are middle-aged, some are black, white, yellow, red, brown. Some of them are Republicans, some of them are Democrats, some of them are independent. Some of them go, what? Some of them speak English. Some of them don't. Some of them are Christian. Some of them are not. I don't know who these people are. And I don't know what they're feeling. And I don't know what they're facing. And I don't know what their struggles are. But I am comforted to know that there is a God in heaven who knows each and every one of them intimately and personally and perfectly. And he not only knows, he knows because he loves you and wants to be a part of your life. He's not on your case looking for problems to condemn you. He's on your side. He's in your life. He wants to be there. And he just wants you to know that he's there. And David confesses, God, I know that you know all there is to know about me. There's a second truth about God that David confesses to God. You'll see it in verses 7 through 12. He says, I know that you know, and I know that you're there. I know that you're there. God, I, I not only know that you know all there is to know about me, I know that wherever I go, there you are. That's a good thing, too. That wherever you go, there God is. Here's how David puts it, verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? David says, you know everything that there is to know about me. I know that you know, but also know that you're there. Wherever there is, there you are. And he starts surmising, where could I go to, to escape your spirit? Where could I go to flee from your presence? In the Hebrew, the word presence means your face. God, God where can I run that you don't see me? Then he starts giving us some ideas of where you might run. Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, literally the, the abode of the dead, if I go into the grave, you are there. So death is not an escape. If I go to heaven, God's there. If I just go into a grave, if I go into death, God is there. 
I can't escape him. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now, now David is using the analogy of the sunrise in the east and setting in the west. And he's saying, if I could take the wings of the morning, if I could jump on one of those sunbeams that peaks up over the horizon in the east and travel with that light beam, 186,000 miles per second, the speed of light, and go from the east all the way to the west at the sunset. Even there, I'd run into you. I can't run from you. I can't get ahead of you. I can't get away from you, no matter how fast I may try. Verse 10, even there, even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. He's saying, even there, from the east to the west, you're going to be there to lead me by your hand and to hold me by your hand. In fact, your right hand. In, in the Bible, the, the, the analogy of God's right hand speaks of God's power, his authority, his protection. And David says, that's why you meet me wherever I am, because I need you wherever I am. I'm going to need you to guide me. I'm going to need you to guard me no matter where I go. And I can always find you faithful. He's not finished. He comes up with another idea. Verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Verse 12. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. I remember as a kid learning for the first time about our soldiers in the United States Army wearing night vision goggles. Blew my mind that, man, it can be pitch black, but with those special goggles, they could see other people, other enemies, other equipment, troops, movement, night vision. And listen, if we finite human beings can come up with a way to see into the dark, don't you think God can see into the dark? David says, here's an idea. What if I retreat into the darkness? Nope. God sees me as if I'm right in the middle of the noonday. It's, I'm just not hidden to God even by the darkness. And God is saying, or David is saying about God, God, I know that you know, and I know that you're there. Friend, I don't know where there will be for you this afternoon. I don't know where there will be for you tomorrow. I don't know where there will be for you next week. I hope it's a great place. I hope there is a happy place. I hope there is a place of prosperity. I hope there, wherever it is, is a place where you can find all that you're looking for. But even if there is a place of pain, even if there is a place of hurt and grief and shock, you need to know that even there, God is. He's right there with you. He's promised, Hebrews 13, 5, to never leave you, never forsake you. So where you go, there he's going to be. So David gives us two truths. The first truth about God he declares to God is, I know you know. The second truth he declares about God to God is, I know you're there. The second or the third truth he declares about God to God is, I know that you care. I know that you care. God is not only omniscient, he knows all things. 
God is also omnipresent. He's everywhere. You are. He's there. But he's also, I'll just give you a third little theological jargon. He's also not only omniscient, omnipresent, he is omnipotent, all-powerful. Omni, all, potent power. He is all-powerful. And one of the evidences that your God is the all-powerful God is not just that he created the universe. He created you and you and you and every single one of us. And David knew that. Verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. David says, how do I know that you care? It's because you created me. You created me to be in a relationship with you. You created me because you love me and you want me to love you back. And you formed my inward parts. You knitted, you embroidered, you wove together me in my mother's womb. This is a picture of conception and and growth and birth. This is a picture of the miracle of human life. And it is a picture, and I don't want to be crude here, it's a picture that there was more going on at that moment than just mom and dad. God was involved. God is the one who personally got involved in your creation. He formed you. This is a hands-on thing. He knitted you with skill and intricacy and beauty. This is a God thing. And David realizes that, God, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't even exist. I wouldn't be here. And it causes David to praise God. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David says, when I think about the human body and how you've made me and the abilities and the, 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 the power of thought, and it's more than he can imagine. And he says, God, fearfully and wonderfully made. It's an awesome masterpiece that you've done. David's not bragging on himself. He's bragging on God. I remember when I was a kid, my sister had a poster on her bedroom wall. It was a picture of a, of a little girl with her hands folded and her chin on her hands. And over the picture were the words, God don't make no junk. Now that's bad grammar, but that is good theology. And I don't know who you are, what your family origin or your experiences have been. I want you to hear from God's word that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are a special creation of God. You are absolutely unique. There has never been, there never will be another person like you. God loves you and created you. And wants to be a part of your life. Even before your mother even knew you were there, God knew and God had a plan for you. In fact, David confesses in verse 15, my frame, in other words, my, my body, my, my skeleton, my, my whole system, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, that's a euphemism for the womb, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. There again, he says, I was intricately embroidered in the womb. And God 
You saw it all. You were there. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. But not only did God know David even in the womb, God knew David in the world. He says, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God, not only did you create me, you have a destiny for me. And I thank you that you've got a plan for my life. Even before I was formed, you knew me. And listen, this whole issue of the sanctity of human life is such a delicate and complicated matter. But can I tell you, one of the reasons that I am pro-life is because of these verses that we've just read. That every human being from the moment of conception is a wonderful masterpiece of God. And whenever I saw Joshua's first sonogram when Donna was pregnant with our first child, no one had to convince me I was looking at a human being. I knew that was my child. But it astounds me to think that long before Donna and I knew him, God already knew him and knew the plans he had for him. And that's true of you as well. God loves you and he created you. And it it blows David's mind that God was thinking of him. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. David says, when I think about all the thought and the planning that went into making me, I'm amazed by that. When I think about all the thought that went into planning out my life, it's more than I can imagine. Verse 18, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake And I am still with you. David is declaring about God to God. I know that you know. I know that you're there. I know that you care. And then the fourth truth he declares about God to God is, I know that you hear my prayer. Now I want to brace you for the next few verses we're about to read because it seems so startling. It's almost like, where'd that come from? Is that in the wrong psalm? Maybe that should be in a different psalm. That doesn't fit the tone of this one, but it actually does. And I want you to bear with me as we read verses 19 through 22 to begin with. Remember, David is saying here, God, I know that you hear my prayer. And and here's one of the prayers he's praying. Verse 19, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as my enemies. We read this as one of those imprecatory psalms that he's he's praying God's judgment upon the enemies of God. And it just seems so out of place with the tone of what we've just read. But not really. Because what David is thinking about is the mighty, powerful loving God who has done all of this good for not only David, but for all people. And then to see the very creation of God rebel against their creator, to see men fight their maker. David says, no, God, I don't want to be counted among those people who fight you and who reject you. And he's not talking about just the average sinner. He's talking about people who are intent on overthrowing God and God's people. And he says, no, no, no. God, I'm not on that side. I'm on the side of knowing you and praising you. I want to live for you and do right by you because you are worthy of my worship. 
who you are and what you have done, you are worthy of my obedience. You are worthy of my prayer. You're worthy of my praise. You're worthy of my submission. I want to be on your side, God. But there are people who are not, and I don't want to be counted in that number. Now, you and I need to remember we're not David. We're not the king of Israel. But we also need to remember what Jesus taught us. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44, Jesus said, I know you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for them and bless them. And show the world that you're children of the Father. Jesus says, we pray for our enemies. And what are we praying for? We're praying they turn from their sin. We're praying they stop rejecting God. We're praying they stop rebelling against heaven and they come to submission and humility and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what we're praying for. But you know, he also taught us to pray in Matthew 6. When you pray, pray in this manner. Our Father, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So before you condemn David, remember every time we pray for God's kingdom to come, for the second coming of Jesus, we are literally praying for the day that Jesus returns and makes all wrong right and judges and rules in righteousness. So really we're praying the same thing just from different perspectives. Now David's not finished with his prayer yet. David continues in verses 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David says, God, I'm not above sin. I'm not above wickedness. God, I'm not above rebellion. God, I'm not above wicked, harmful, grievous ways of living my life. Ways that are hurtful to you. I'm not above ways that are hurtful to other people. I'm not above ways that even hurt myself. God, I need you to hear my prayer. I need you to search me. God, I need you to know my heart. God, I need you to try me. In other words, examine, scrutinize me and know my thoughts and see if there be any harmful way in me so that I can repent of that and lead me, God, in the way everlasting. He's saying, God, I need you in my life. You're already there. You know you're already there, you care, and you hear my prayer. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to open my life up to you. I'm going to surrender to your scrutiny in my life because I know nothing you find is going to surprise you, but it may surprise me. So God, I want you to just do in me what I need you to do because I've come to realize you know me the best and you love me the most. And so I can be safe in exposing my life to you. We sang in that first service this morning, our traditional service, the words of that hymn, I surrender all, all to Jesus, I surrender. All to him I freely give. 
I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. And that's what David is praying. God, I surrender. I surrender to the God who knows me the best and loves me the most. Would you guard me from wrong? Would you guide me in the right? That is my prayer. One of my favorite stories is of a burglar who broke into a home in the middle of the night. All he had was a single flashlight to illumine his way as he looked for valuables in the home. As he went into the living room, shining his little single beam flashlight around, looking for something to steal, he heard a voice call out to him from the corner of the room. You better watch out. Jesus is watching you. And he just stopped dead in his tracks. Oh, no, I thought this home was empty. And he heard it a second time. You better watch out. Jesus is watching you. He shone his flashlight over into the corner where he heard the sound. And to his relief, he saw a parrot in a birdcage. And the parrot said, you better watch out. Jesus is watching you. He said, oh, my word, I can't believe I let this dumb bird in a cage scare me like that. And as soon as he said that, he lowered his flashlight and the beam fell on the face of a snarling Doberman pincher. And the parrot said, sick him, Jesus, sick him. (laughs) And I think sometimes that's the idea we have of God. He's just waiting to catch us in something bad we've done so that he can condemn us and punish us. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is he already knows you the best. And he already loves you the most. He just wants you to let him in so that he can guide and guard your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, we confess to you that we are sinners. And sometimes, rather than running to you, we run away from you. But God, you are already there. We, we can run, but we can't hide. We can run, but we can't escape. We can try to devise ways to fool you, but even before we think it or we say it, you already know. And God, thank you for loving us too much to leave us alone. Thank you that you love us. And you're already aware of our lives and what we're facing. And you want us to surrender to you so that you can guard us. Because so often we get ourselves in trouble when we forget you. And you want to guide us. Thank you that the Christian life is not just about a lot of don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's about a life of freedom and purpose and meaning and joy. It's the way everlasting. It's a way that we can live now and forever by your grace. Thank you for that. Thank you for knowing us the best and still loving us the most out of anyone in this universe. And I pray that right now we would surrender to you and just say, God, have your will and way in my life. In fact, friend, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, I'm going to give you homework for the next week. Maybe when you put your head on your pillow tonight and this week to go to sleep, uh, or maybe it's when you wake up in the morning and it's your prayer that greets the day. I want you to pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. So with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, listen to this again and pray it silently in your heart now if this is what you want to do, if this is what you want to say to God. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, thank you that that is a prayer you will answer in all of our lives. God, there could be someone in this room, however, who's never received Jesus as Savior. I pray that right now they would realize that becoming a Christian doesn't mean you get your life together and you're perfect and you're religious. No, thank you that your salvation is not a reward for righteous people. It's a gift to guilty people. And Jesus is the one who promised. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so God, maybe for the first time in someone's life, they will believe, they will trust, they will put their faith in Jesus and Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sin and for the gift of eternal life. I pray that this morning, maybe a husband or a dad, a mom or a wife or a single adult here, maybe a widow, maybe a first-time guest or maybe a long-time attender, realizing today they need Jesus as their Savior, would open their life to him. And we'll praise you, God, for what you do in all of our lives as we respond to you in faith and obedience. Thank you for knowing us the best, loving us the most. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.